you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Morning Church, we've got two passages to read today. Our first is from 1 Corinthians 13, which is our series passage. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It is not rude, it is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. Now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. This reading comes from 2 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1 to 12. After the death of Saul, David returned from defeating the Amalekites and stayed in Ziklag two days. On the third day, a man arrived from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and with dust on his head. When he came to David, he fell to the ground to pay him honor. Where have you come from? David asked him. He answered, I have escaped from the Israelite camp. What happened? David asked. Tell me. He said, the men fled from the battle. Many of them fell and died, and Saul and his son Jonathan are dead. Then David said to the young man who brought him the report, how do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? I happened to be on Mount Geboa, the young man said, and there was Saul leaning on his spear with the chariots and riders almost upon him. When he turned around and saw me, he called out to me and I said, what can I do? He asked me, who are you? An Amalekite, I answered. Then he said to me, stand over me and kill me. I am in the throes of death, but I'm still alive. So I stood over him and killed him, because I knew that after he had fallen, he could not survive. And I took the crown that was on his head and the band on his arm and have brought them here to my Lord. Then David and all the men with him took hold of their clothes and tore them. They mourned and wept and fasted till evening for Saul and his son Jonathan and for the army of the Lord and the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword." Thank you very much. Well, so good to be with you this morning. Uh, as we've said, uh, today's a bit of a, a heavy topic, uh, and so as we approach it, uh, I don't know about you, but I 
I feel like I need Jesus right now. Uh, and so how about we pray uh, as we dive in? Gracious Father, I just want just to thank you for your word to us, Lord. Thank you that, uh, that by it you have revealed yourself to us. Pray that you would just do the miraculous work of, of illuminating it to us so that we might know, uh, understand it. We might know you more uh, and might be transformed by it. I pray that you would give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, tongues to taste your beauty and your glory. Lord, and I pray that uh, that's what I have to say this morning might be well-pleasing in your sight. And we pray these things in the mighty name of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen. As I was uh, preparing for uh, this sermon this morning, I read the story of uh, a young man named Bertie Daniel. Uh, in 2009, when, when Bertie was just eight years old, he was living in New South Wales, uh, his dad, Laurie, was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis which is a uh, neurodegenerative disease uh, that affects the peripheral nervous system, causing uh, unending neuropathic pain, uh, loss of control of limbs and bodily functions, and uh, currently there, there, there's no cure for it. Uh, his di- the diagnosis was, was hidden from, from Bertie and his younger sister by his family uh, until they were teenagers uh, when his dad's condition had just kind of deteriorated to the point where it could no longer be hidden. Uh, he, uh, his dad, Laurie, lost his licence. Uh, he, could, he could no longer work uh, and eventually lost the use of his legs. Bertie recalls just how almost every night uh, he could hear his dad sobbing and screaming in pain until he fell asleep, and even then, uh, he said he could feel the pain in his dreams. When he would wake up in the next morning, it looked like he'd, he'd never even really slept, and uh, his dad would often start the days by, by cursing the fact that he'd even woken up. The pain and loss of function uh, of his limbs just got too much for Laurie, and so uh, one day he, he sent Bertie and the rest of his family away on a holiday, and then on the 25th of September in 2016... Uh, when Bertie was just 15 years old, his dad ended his own life, just in the middle of the night, all alone. Bertie goes on to describe how, uh, after his dad had received his diagnosis, he was just told that, that all he could do was just, just go home and wait to die. Bertie said, it's not a dignified death, it's a death preceded by years of agony and suffering. He had no quality of life and yet was forced to keep living. Uh, at that time in New South Wales, uh, euthanasia and assisted dying was not legal, and so Bertie goes on to say this. He says, How can we leave people to die like this? I can hardly forgive those of you who vote against this law. They haven't seen or experienced the suffering that these laws will protect against. Uh, and if they have, then I cannot comprehend the heartlessness one must suffer from to believe that our treatment of the terminally ill and dying is acceptable. This is a a horrific story, isn't it? We just see the way that that pain is just uh, often just multiplied in death. And with all these topics that we're talking about as part of our left and right series, uh, these issues, they're not just political, but they're personal, aren't they? We're, We're talking about real people. These issues are complex, aren't they? How can we choose between relieving pain and preserving life? What does true compassion 
look like for those who have a, a terminal illness? And then in the, faith, in the face of inevitable death, where is the line between right and wrong? And so perhaps this is something that you've, you've had to wrestle with before. Perhaps it's, it's something that you're actually in the midst of right now. Or maybe it's something that you haven't actually given much thought to, but uh, the fact is, you know, we will we'll all die one day. That's, that's not a threat, it's just reality. We'll all die. Uh, and so it's highly likely that we're going to have to wrestle with these kind of end-of-life end of decisions, whether that's for ourselves or for loved ones. Uh, and so as we start this morning, uh, we first need to do just some work uh, considering what, what we mean by euthanasia uh, and the main arguments that have been put forward in favour of it. Uh, and then we'll consider how it is it that Scripture actually addresses these things. So first of all, let's consider just some key definitions uh, so we're all on the same page and, and let's define euthanasia. Although the, the word uh, euthanasia uh, comes from two Greek words uh, that literally means good death. Uh, and so it's typically referring to the active ending of someone's life because their death is seen as being preferable to their continued living, uh, typically due to uh, terminal illness. Uh, today, the term euthanasia uh, encompasses kind of a, a number of different terms. One is uh, physician-assisted suicide, uh, which is where the physician or, or doctor aids a patient to, to end their own life. Uh, by, for example, uh, supplying the, the lethal drugs for the patient to administer themselves. Uh, in Australia, uh, it's typically known as voluntary assisted dying, uh, and that allows for both uh, self-administration by the patient uh, or also by practitioner administration, where the, where the doctor uh, administers the lethal substances. Now, it's important here, I think, to, to make a, a critical distinction between uh, what is often called uh, active euthanasia and passive euthanasia. Uh, so active euthanasia is, is where there's an active intention, an intervention to end someone's life prior to the disease or illness. Whereas on the other hand, uh, passive euthanasia, uh, that's sometimes used to re refer to uh, the withdrawing or withholding of life-sustaining treatment. And so rather than seeking to prolong life, uh, it's allowing the death to come uh, as the disease just runs its course. Now, the, I think the, the, the term passive euthanasia is actually just kind of, uh, is particularly unhelpful because it, it blurs this distinction between uh, intentionally causing death and intervening uh, on one hand, and, and letting someone die as the natural consequence of their illness or disease. Uh, and so, so letting die uh, would include uh, foregoing treatment that, that wouldn't cure someone, but it might prolong their uh, life where there's no foreseeable possibility of recovery, such as uh, turning off or, or not starting life support, uh, or not progressing with, with chemotherapy or other treatments, because while those things might prolong life, the, the burden of the, the side effects... Uh, may not be considered a worthwhile option in light of the inevitability of death. And this is a, a really important distinction for us to make because it's uh, where Christians have long believed that the, the moral and ethical lines are drawn. And so that's not to say that there isn't often uh, great just moral complexity uh, around when it's, when it's right to do all that is possible to uh, try and prolong life. 
versus when it's time to, to forgo treatment and withhold. But the, but the withdrawal of treatment is really not the same as, as euthanasia, where there's an active intent to end someone's life and intervene in that way. Uh, and so it's this active and intentional ending of life that will be in view when we're talking about euthanasia this morning. Uh, euthanasia laws, they, they first came into um, effect in the state of Oregon in the US in 1997, uh, and the Netherlands was the first country uh, to pass laws in 2001, uh, closely followed by Belgium. Uh, in Belgium and the Netherlands, uh, the laws there they were originally quite strict, uh, only for those with serious, incurable and unbearable diseases. Uh, but since then, they've gradually been uh, relaxed to be a legal option for those suffering just from an increasing range of health issues, uh, including children as young as nine, uh, those with mental and psychiatric disorders and even fatigue. Uh, between 2014 and 2017, uh, 73 deaths occurred via euthanasia for mood disorders such as depression and bipolar uh, with no terminal diagnosis. Uh, over the years, uh, a number of other US states have legalised the practice. Uh, more recently, euthanasia became legal in Canada and New Zealand, as well as other countries in Europe. Uh, but interestingly, by and large, however, uh, it's actually still illegal in most countries around the world, including the UK uh, and most states in the US. Uh, in Australia, voluntary assisted dying laws were first passed in Victoria in 2017 uh, and came into effect in 2019. Uh, there are similar laws also in, in effect in Western Australia. Uh, and Tasmania, South Australia and New South Wales have all passed similar laws which will come into the effect by the end of next year. Here in Queensland, laws were passed in 2021 uh, and come into effect on the 1st of January next year. Uh, making voluntary assisted dying uh, available to those over 18 with decision-making capacity who have an eligible condition that's expected to cause death within 12 months and be suffering from intolerable pain. Uh, and that is a subjective assessment that's made by the person themselves. Uh, and what we see here, what we see is that it's, it's clear that there is just kind of widespread and growing approval of, of some form of these kind of laws in our country. Uh, and so it's important for us to, to, to consider what are some of the, the main arguments that are put forward uh, for euthanasia. Well, the first and, and most prominent uh, argument uh, is about just personal autonomy and the right to choose. Uh, my life, my death, my choice is the rally cry that you might hear. Uh, we, we, we hear echoes of this in the pro-choice movement as well, that there's this, uh, this fundamental belief that, that permeates our culture that we should have uh, the right to do uh, and choose what we do with our bodies and with our lives, and that should extend even to ending it. Uh, and then closely related to this is the, the desire to, to die with dignity. Uh, often advocacy groups and even the laws themselves even employ this kind of, these kind of terms. For example, the, the laws in Oregon State are known as the Death with Dignity Act. And this is rooted in this idea that, that when you uh, lose personal autonomy and you're no longer able to, to live a full and meaningful life, or when you suffer the, the, the loss of physical or mental capacities, uh, or, or when you have a lowered quality of life and you become ever de dependent on others, then you no longer have any dignity in death. 
And there's a, there's a particular indignity tied to seemingly futile suffering in the face of inevitable death. And if, if death is simply the end, if death is just resting in peace, then, then surely euthanasia must be the, the most compassionate and merciful option. I mean, how can a, a compassionate community insist that a person continue to, to endure the suffering of dying when euthanasia provides a way out? And I mean, th- these are terms that, that we should be, as believers, that we should resonate with, right? I mean, we're, we're, these are things we're about, compassion and mercy and dignity. Uh, another common argument uh, that comes up is that if a, if a dog or a other pet is dying, then, then we will put them down so that they have a, an easy and a painless death. But then if it's our loved ones, then, then without these kind of laws that we, we make them suffer for, for months or even years. And so there's this sense that, it's, that we're often more humane towards animals than towards humans. And so these are some of the, the most kind of prominent arguments that are put forward in favour of legalised euthanasia. But it's, it's also interesting for us to consider what are the, the top reasons uh, that are actually given by those who are pursuing euthanasia themselves. Uh, in the, the US state of Oregon, uh, surveys are done of those requesting physician-assisted death. Uh, and in addition to uh, just wanting to be able to control the circumstances of their death, uh, top reasons uh, include uh, future poor quality of life, so uh, not, not being able to do as they please or do the things that they enjoy, uh, future pain, and future loss of independence and autonomy. Uh, they all scored uh, median scores of five out of five uh, for you math guys out there. Uh, but notice that, that these were all uh, future possibilities rather than present realities. Uh, whereas relief of current pain was actually in the bottom 25% of reasons given with a median score of one out of five. Uh, In 2021, in Belgium, out of almost 2,700 deaths by euthanasia, uh, almost one in five were not expected to die naturally in the immediate future. Uh, But significantly, one of the uh, most prominent reasons given is Uh, that of the perception of self as a burden, uh, with a median score of four out of five, which means that a a very high percentage of people uh, feel that their their lack of autonomy, that they feel that their their increasing dependence on others, that that their own pain is simply a burden on those around them, and that's why uh, they're seeking and have pursued euthanasia. And this highlights a a difficult reality for those who advocate. Because once you make the the huge step to making uh, euthanasia legal, it's really only a very small step to to being obligated to die if you think that uh, you might be a burden and an inconvenience to others. And and even though there's actually uh, typically a whole bunch of laws and other safeguards in place Uh, so that people don't feel any kind of external pressure to die, that it is completely voluntary, there are actually just an incredibly high percentage of people who who voluntarily choose euthanasia, but they do so out of of a strong feeling 
of obligation. See, the very fact that uh, the option is on the table creates uh, incredible pressure, especially if they sense that it would relieve the burden that they themselves are to those around them, even if they don't want to die themselves. So it would, it would, be, it would be selfish not to, wouldn't it? And now that it's, it's, it's not merely becomes an option, but it actually becomes an obligation. And if that's true, then, then in what meaningful way can we actually say that it's truly voluntary? Uh, it's no surprise then that currently more than uh, 4% of all deaths in Belgium, uh, or seven people per day, occur via euthanasia. Uh, and that percentage continues to increase. So what does is, what is scripture say about all this? Uh, unsurprisingly, uh, the Bible has a lot to say uh, about matters of life and death. Uh, and the first thing uh, I want to look at is that it tells us about true human dignity. True human dignity. Uh, according to, uh, to scripture, uh, all human life has inherent value and worth and dignity because we are made in the image of God. Uh, this is what it says right at the beginning. Genesis chapter 1, verse 20 says, it says that, that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And so this tells us that, that true dignity uh, is not found in things like our personal autonomy. It's not found in our, our capacities that we have or our independence it's not, it's not found in our quality of life because all of those things actually greatly vary between all people. And interestingly, the, those who are most vocally against euthanasia are not Christians, much to our detriment, but it's uh, disability advocates because they may not necessarily believe that, that men and women are made in the age of God, but they know that the moment that you root human dignity in concepts such as uh, personal autonomy, in concepts such as independence or the extent to which life can be enjoyed, if you try to root it in personal capacity, whether, whether physical or mental, or, or how much of a burden you are on others, then it, then it isn't lo illogical to extend euthanasia to, to those with mental and physical disabilities or those who have reduced or limited autonomy or capacity. Uh, the, the ethicist Peter Singer, uh, he said that, once the religious mumbo-jumbo surrounding the word human has been taken away, we will no longer regard as sacrosanct the life of every member of our species, no matter how limited its capacity for intelligent or even conscious life may be. And from there, he actually goes on to advocate for non-voluntary euthanasia uh, for those with low cognitive function, for dementia, for the mentally disabled, as well as infanticide, because babies do not have those functions either uh, and therefore do not have the dignity of humanity. Now, not many of those who advocate for euthanasia will, will agree with him to that extent, but his logic is sound. So if the primary reasons for euthanasia are about, are about things like lack of personal autonomy or independence, or with a lack of capacity to, to live a, a meaning and enjoyable life, 
if it's about just simply ending suffering, then it's, then it's not hard to argue that that option uh, should be extended to a much broader range of people. Be- because there's many people who, who don't have terminal illnesses, but who have no, no real autonomy or independence, who have very little capacity with a, with a physical or mental, who, who live in constant pain, whether physical or psychological, Many, many people who, are, who are, are a burden on other people and on resources. And, and, and this is what we see around the world. That, that laws just seem to inevitably uh, get expanded to where there's no longer even a requirement to be terminally ill. Uh, a bill was tabled in the Netherlands in 2020 to allow for euthanasia to those over 75 who, who simply feel as though they've completed life. Uh, even if they have no terminally, terminal illness and are completely healthy. Uh, the Australian bioethics professor, Margaret Somerville, uh, she said, once we cross the line, well, once we cross the clear line that we must not intentionally kill another person, there is no logical stopping point. See, we can't be, we can't be pro-euthanasia and then wonder why we have such a suicide epidemic on our hands. Uh, author G.K. Chesterton said, uh, people are equal in the same way pennies are equal. A few younger ones, penny is like a coin, right? Money, you have to actually hold in your hands, right? Pennies are equal. Some are bright, uh, others are dull. Some are worn smooth, others are sharp and fresh. But all are equal in value, for each penny bears the image of the sovereign. Each person bears the image of the king of kings. I mentioned earlier about how one of the, the arguments for euthanasia is about you know, how we, we might put down a, a suffering pet so that they have, a, have an easy and peaceful death, but then we'll, we'll force our loved ones to suffer, as if we're regularly more humane towards dogs than humans. But the reality is, is that we're not dogs. And the reason that we put them down and that it's okay to put them down is because they're not humans. See, when we, when we put down a pet, we're not, we're not treating them more humanely. We're, we're actually treating them like an animal. And that's why we should treat people, especially those who are suffering in the face of death. That's why we should treat them fundamentally different to animals and not kill them. Theologian Vaughan Roberts, he said, the radical independence of the secular worldview leads to fragile dignity. If human beings are just animals, the only thing that distinguishes us from any other form of life is our greater capacities. There's no logical reason to regard a human with limited capacity as having greater dignity or worth than a highly functioning animal. See, human dignity is, is not rooted in things like personal autonomy or our capacity. It's rooted in the fact that we're all made in the image of God and that all people have true dignity, value, and worth. Scripture also tells us that, that physical death is, is not the end, but it's the enemy. That, that death is the enemy, not the end. 
Uh, as we mentioned, one of the, the key underlying belief, beliefs that make, makes euthanasia uh, not just plausible but preferable in our culture today is the, that this idea that, that death is just simply the end. That, that death is just resting in peace. That there, there's nothing beyond it. And so it makes total uh, sense for it to be a valid way to end pain. But see, the death itself will deliver no mercy for, or release from pain. Uh, in Hebrews 9, it says that uh, just as it is appointed for man to die once, after that comes judgment. See, true compassion, true, true mercy is not, is not hastening an unbeliever's entrance into an exp- exponentially more painful eternity without God. And true compassion and mercy is not encouraging even the believer to distrust in the promises and the providence and the sovereignty of God, who is the one who determines the boundaries of our lives. See, for the believer, the practical outworking of trusting God with your eternity is trusting him with your present life. Because in fact... Death is not natural. See, see, death is actually a radical, unnatural intrusion into the good created order that God has made. See, suffering and death and pain is the curse of our enslavement to sin. See, we, we were never meant to die, but, but sin brought death and pain and suffering. And, and so like sin, that the Bible sees death as an enemy. It says this in 1 Corinthians 15. It says, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. See, there will be a day when death is no more. But until then, we must never think of death as if it's something good that can just simply be administered to people as if it's going to cure anything. And because of these things, when it comes to uh, intentionally taking life, the, the Bible is clear that, that murder is wrong. This is a, the sixth of the, the Ten Commandments, uh, not to kill. Now, Scripture does uh, tell us that there, there are times when it's, when it's right to take life. Now, we don't really have to kind of dive into that, kind of, that side of things right now, but the, the general principle is that, that it's only right to take life when the sixth commandment itself is at stake. Uh, so, for example, uh, there are times when there are, are just reasons for war, uh, for when the, the taking of life is required in order to protect life, to protect from an invading army or something like that. Uh, and in those circumstances, it's not considered murder because you're protecting the sixth commandment itself. So, so what then of, of euthanasia? In the, the complex and the painful situations of, of inevitable death, is it ever okay to, to help someone end their life? Well, uh, in our Bible reading uh, earlier, we, we heard from uh, 2 Samuel chapter 1. Uh, I'd love you to open up there if you've got your Bible with you. Uh, but we read this really interesting story about the death of King Saul. Uh, Saul had been anointed uh, by God to be Israel's first king. But uh, 
through his actions and what he'd done, he's actually, he'd actually made himself an enemy of God. And as we read, uh, an Amalekite man, he, he comes to David, who's going to be the next king, and tells the story of how uh, he came across the dying King Saul on the battlefield because he'd been mortally wounded in battle. Uh, and as death was inevitable, he, he tells of how Saul begs him to, to kill him so that he would be saved from greater pain. And so the, the Amalekite agrees and uh, ends Saul's life. And then he, he takes the crown and his armlet and he takes it back to David, who would be the new king. And in this story, so we, we, we actually see a number of similar similarities to the arguments given for euthanasia. For, for example, we see that, that Saul uh, had a terminal diagnosis, that there was, there was no reasonable human hope of recovery for him. The, the second thing we see is that he was also in uh, extreme pain, uh, and that would only likely increase the longer that he was alive. The third thing we see is that, that Saul himself uh, directly and voluntarily requested to uh, be put to death. And, and as to the legality of it, well, well Saul was the king. I mean, he, he makes the rules. Uh, and so uh, it's basically a direct command from the government itself. And so, I mean, if there, was, if there was ever a time to end someone's life for the sake of, of mercy and compassion, then, then surely this is it, right? It appears as well, though the Amalekite, well, he was expecting at least uh, some kind of commendation for, for doing what was right, uh, for doing what was merciful and compassionate. Not only that, is that the death of Saul was the moment where David would finally become king. Saul had been chasing down David and trying to kill him for years and years. And so David has every reason to uh, approve of all this, what, what happened. But there's a bit of a twist. So we're going to keep reading in the story, from 2 Samuel chapter 1, uh, and we'll look at David's response. Chapter, uh, chapter 1, 14 says, uh, David said to him, How is it you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed. Then David called one of the young men and said to him, Go execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. David said to him, Your blood be on your head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. Now, there's definitely a whole bunch of complexities with this passage, with this story, uh, namely because uh, in, in the previous chapter in uh, 1 Samuel 31, it actually records the death of Saul uh, as a suicide with no mention of the Amalekite. Uh, in fact, Saul actually uh, asked his armor bearer to, to kill him and his armor bearer refused and so he had to do it himself. Uh, and so there's actually a real possibility here that the Amalekite was actually lying and made the whole thing up. But, but whether or not it, it happened is actually not important for our point because it seems that David believed the man's story. He had no reason to disbelieve. And there, there's no indication that David thought he was lying about it. And he says, uh, Your mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. And so the Amalekite was executed for killing Saul. 
And so in David's judgment, that even in what might see, it might, might seem to be a, a moment that just has incredibly compelling reasons to, to mercifully end someone's life, even at their explicit request, even at the command of the sovereign, that it's judged as murder and punished as such. Now, as we said, the, the word euthanasia uh, literally means good death. But, but according to scripture, that's clearly a misnomer. So what, what does a good death actually look like? So let's consider the true good death. So the Bible does, does talk about a good death. It's actually nothing like what we've been talking about. So the good news of the gospel is because of the good death of Jesus. It actually stands in stark contrast to the good death of euthanasia. So because rather than taking hold of his divine autonomy, Jesus laid down that autonomy when, it, when he took on flesh and became a man. He, he, he didn't avoid the pain and suffering, but, but he actually endured it. He, he didn't give up on life to escape this world, but he laid down his life in order to save this world. See, because the, the reality is, is, if anyone could have avoided death, if anyone could have avoided suffering, if anyone could have avoided the humiliation and the indignation of, of dying naked in public, surely it was him. I mean, he could have been like the X-Men, been like Magneto and just kind of, you know, pried the metal nails out of his hands and then levitated down off the cross. He could have been like Wolverine then and just kind of self-healed. Scripture actually tells us that, that he could have just yelled enough and, and summoned dozens of legions of angels to come down and just end the whole thing there and then. But, but what did he do? He, he endured the suffering. He, he endured the humiliation. He, he endured the indignity, being abandoned by his friends. His, his reputation being replaced with mockery. He was alone, naked, tortured. And yet in that moment, he yielded himself to the Father. He said, into your hands I commit my spirit. And see, in the, in the most painful moment... In the, in the face of inevitable death, he, he, he said to God that it's your timing, it's not mine. That it's, that it's your plans, not mine. That it's your will for my life, not mine. See, Jesus died the most undignified and painful death, even when he had all the resources at his disposal not to. And, and because of that, that we too are called to die. Not by physical suicide, but we are called to, to die to ourselves, die to our desires for autonomy, called to die to our desires for control. And we, we are called to live by faith. This is what Paul says in Galatians 2, 20. says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live 
in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And just as Jesus himself walked through the valley of the shadow of death, then we too are called to do the same because that's the place where God is with us. So, so how are we to respond as Christians? How should we respond to this issue? Let me just finish with, with a few brief points. First of all, we should care for others. See, the, the care for the sick and the dying and for those who are most needy has always been at the heart of Christian compassion and mercy. This is the practical outworking of the gospel. And then as believers, we actually have a particular responsibility to those closest to us. Paul in 1 Timothy 5 says that, but if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. See, the response to the gospel, the gospel itself calls us to care deeply for those around us. Second is that we should promote palliative care. Promote palliative care. See, whenever the, the gospel has gone out around the world, the, the benefits of, of health care and of medicine of, and of social compassion have always followed. And in fact, uh, palliative care, which is the, the holistic care given to those who are terminally ill in order to, to, to relieve symptoms and to relieve pain, that, that was actually pioneered by a committed Christian. Dame Cicely Saunders started St. Christopher's Hospice in London. And advances in palliative care and pain relief often mean that the fear of what might happen is actually far worse than reality. And research has shown that requests for euthanasia are actually rarely sustained after good palliative care is established. And in the complexity of these moments... In, in, in trying to determine best treatments when it's time to, to forgo treatment, that this is what actually true compassion and mercy look like. Uh, Andy Messer is a, is a member of Sit on a Hill, Melbourne East, my church, a good friend of mine. Uh, his sister Sally uh, was born with a rare degenerative uh, neuromuscular disease called grey matter heterotopia. Uh, which affected her upper and lower limbs, plus lungs and vocal cords. Uh, her wasn't actually uh, diagnosed until she was about 21 years old after a whole bunch of uh, complications from a chest infection. Sally uh, eventually lost her ability to walk uh, and had carers helping her to live at home with her parents. Uh, she was subsequently diagnosed with multifocal myoclonus and dystonia. Uh, in late 2017... Uh, her condition sharply deteriorated. She began to have seizures uh, and bleeding in her lungs uh, and ultimately needed to remain in hospital for over two years. Uh, after extensive renovations uh, and alterations to their home, which was able to be done by donations to the family from uh, friends and church members, uh, she was finally able to come home but still required 24-7 just round-the-clock care from professionals, from nurses and specialists. Uh, over the last few years, there were further complications with uh, regular bleeding episodes in her lungs. She eventually lost her ability to speak and required constant 
uh, breathing assistance and pain relief. Sally had, had an army of people who, who supported her and her family in just a myriad of different ways. Family and friends in her church community, as well as just a, a raft of uh, healthcare specialists that enabled her to endure through this time. And although from, from an earthly perspective, her, her life was hopeless. Her, her hope wasn't in her life on earth. It was in Jesus. See, Sally understood her, her disability to be a gift from God. But actually, not, not only a gift, but it was actually her vocation and her calling. Her, her family would say that, that people would, would go to visit uh, intending to bless Sally. But they would actually walk out the ones who were blessed by her. She found great hope, hope and comfort in Romans 12. It says, rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. And during this year, she had another series of uh, bleeds and seizures and didn't regain consciousness. She died peacefully at home, surrounded by family. Sally's dad, Steve, said this. We have much for which we are grateful to God. He has sustained us through many difficult days. Sally was his gift to us. And being her family was a joyful privilege. We have been witness to many miracles, not the least of which is that throughout these testing years, Sal never once complained. Hers was not an undignified death. And although in great pain, completely dependent on others, she died with great courage and full of hope. It's in, it's in these moments, caring for the sick and the dying, that, that Christian mercy and compassion and dignity can be shown. The last thing I want to highlight is just we should, we should share the gospel. See, many in our world will, will go through most of their life Ignoring the reality of their death, never uh, considering, never considering eternity. But these these end of life situations are just amazing opportunities to, to share the good news of the good death and resurrection of Jesus. That that death is the enemy because sin is real and there's judgment to come, but there's hope. And real hope and, and peace is not found in having a pain-free and peaceful death, but is, is found in the painful death and the victorious resurrection of Jesus. See, right now, for us, death still has its sting. See, the process of, of dying may well be, be bitter and painful and full of grief, but see, one day that sting will be gone. And we can face death, no matter what that looks like for us, with the hope that we see in Revelation 21. It says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Friends, this is our hope. Would you pray with me? Gracious Father, 
these are weighty, heavy topics. But with just so complex, Lord, they're not easy. But Lord, may we look to you for wisdom and compassion. Lord, may you define for us true dignity that's it's not found in our autonomy, it's not found in what we can do, it's not found in our capacity or our relative independence, Lord, but our, our dignity, our worth, our value. Our lives are found in you because we are made in your image. That you loved us, that you sent your son Jesus to die for us so that we won't die, but we would live for eternity with you, Lord. Lord, may we look to you for strength to endure, to trust you with our lives. Lord, we pray for, for wisdom as we, as we just kind of wade through the complexities of these, these end-of-life decisions. Lord, may we give true compassion and mercy, not hoping in, hoping in death, but hoping in Jesus. And it's his name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.